the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at AIB's decision to cut cash services from another 70 of its branches. Joe Brennan of the Irish Times and John O'Connell of the Financial Services Union join me in a few moments to give me their thoughts on the move. Later in the show, Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times will give his view on the ECB's likely move on interest rates on Thursday. Should those on variable and tracker mortgages now switch to fixed-term ones instead? You'll hear Cliff's view later in the show. But first to AIB's decision to eliminate cash services from another 70 branches across the country. It has drawn the ire of local communities and their political representatives, along with the Financial Services Union, which represents AIB staff and is led by John O'Connell. John will explain why the FSU is opposed to the move in a few moments, but I began by asking Joe Brennan of the Irish Times to outline AIB's plan. Yeah, so AIB came out there um, yesterday morning, uh, Tuesday morning, just to announce that um, it has about 170 branches across the country and they said they were moving 70 branches to to cashless. Uh, so basically, they wouldn't be accepting uh, cash or, or, or coins at, at desks. But not only that, they would be also taking out the ATM facility in those in, in those branches as well, which is a step beyond what other banks have done that have kind of gone to so-called cashless kind of a cashless uh, branch status. Um, also includes the fact that actually before this, uh, AIB had about 22 branches. Uh, that were, were cashless as well. So more than half of AIB's branches will be uh, cashless effectively by the end of, of, of October. And if you look at just its, its, its closest, exa- nearest rival, Bank of Ireland, a number of years ago, went about uh, moving a, a good chunk of its um, of its branch network to a cashless basis. Uh, and last year, when it was going about uh, cutting a number of branches, the branches that actually had gone cashless were kind of uh, rich pickings for the bank when it actually came to deciding which branches it would close. So the 88 branches that uh, Bank of Ireland announced last year that it was closing, the good chunk of those had gone cashless in, in, in the preceding years. Uh, Bank of Ireland is about 169 branches left and about 26 of those no longer accept cash. Now they do advise, like AIB, they, 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 they've moved those kind of branches to kind of more advice, uh, providing advice and, and other services to, 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 to customers. Uh, similarly, uh, permanent TSB has also gone in recent years. Last year, it announced that it was moving about 43 of its 75 branches to a cashless basis. But Bank of Ireland and permanent TSB both have ATM facilities in the banks, whereas AIB is going one step further. You'd have to think also that the fact that AIB, while it hasn't gone down the whole kind of uh, shutting these branches and says it's very very much committed to these branches, if and when AIB is looking to uh, reduce its branch network further, uh, as is inevitable in the coming years, you would imagine that the 70 branches or the 92 branches uh, that are cashless would be the the stock from which it would be picking to, to, to start cutting additional branches. So, Joe, when you walk into these AIB branches, what services are they going to be providing? Yeah, so look at big lifetime decisions. Mortgage, uh, mortgage obviously is a, is a clear one. Uh, at the moment, uh, the, the huge emphasis is on uh, current account openings for, for, for customers. If you see that 95% 
of the branches uh, of its branches are actually in areas where there is or there has been a KBC or an Ulster Bank or a KBC branch, uh, less so a KBC branch because they've only got 12. Uh, so they, they, they are, you know, they're, they're taking on a number, they're employing a, a lot of people on a temporary basis, I think 700 people. They're looking to employ uh, temporarily to try and beef up uh, their capacity to take on uh, Ulster Bank uh, current accounts and, and, and deposit accounts. So it's more about savings and investments. That's where AIB, that's where the, 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 the area that AIB wants to go increasingly into, or the banks in general want to go increasingly into, uh, they want to increase their, their non-interest income. So uh, you have AIB going down the route with uh, with Canada Life looking to set up a, a life and pensions joint venture. Uh, and, and that, again, will be uh, something they'll be uh, pushing uh, with, with customers coming into the, uh, into the branches in future. So it's less about dealing with day-to-day cash and more about selling, uh, providing advice, selling product, uh, and for bigger decisions where you have to actually meet someone face-to-face. Uh, John O'Connell, you're head of the Financial Services Union, which represents um, workers in the likes of AIB. You're not happy with this plan. Why? I think there's a number of reasons. One, and and it's a very significant reason, is the middle. We're in the middle of a review uh, about the future of banking, about the type of model that we want in Ireland, uh, and how that's going to be developed. And in the middle of that, uh, AIB goes ahead. Uh, and does this, which, you know, preempts some of the outcome of the review in, in terms of the, the type of model of banking that, uh, we require. Uh, we believe banks have a societal role, uh, and not just a commercial role. Uh, and that, uh, it, you know, shows contempt for the review by doing this in the, you know, in the, the middle of the review. The public consultation period has just, uh, concluded, uh, and now, you know, 70 communities are finding that they're going to have a lesser bank service uh, than other communities, uh, that they are, you know, uh, involuntarily being pushed to, to other areas like the post office to carry out transactions. And in some of these locations, the very, very small post offices and so forth, uh, and while we acknowledge the role of the post offices and they have a transactional role in support of, of, of banks, they can't replace them. John, will this lead to redundancies among your members at AIB? We've been advised by the bank that it won't. Uh, I suppose we have to mirror that uh, assurance against our experience in Bank of Ireland uh, when it occurred there. Uh, and Equally, in, in, in terms of the points that uh, Joe has highlighted there, in, in terms of is this to uh, stabilise this particular model in these areas or is this the precursor to a further decision in relation to the branch network? And I think there's you know, a lot of questions that have yet to be answered in, in that regard. And that's why uh, at this point in, in, in time, we have such an opposition to the move. And what's your own view, John, on the future of bank branching uh, in Ireland, because it, it seems to be only going one way, doesn't it? I mean, we, we have been moving towards uh, mass uh, bank branch closures now for a number of years. And as Joe has uh, noted, it's really advisory services. It's kind of selling you loans and pensions and that type of thing that the bank is interested in doing with people face to face rather than providing them cash or accepting cash over the counter. So what's what's the future of the bank branch? How many of them will we have, let's say, in 10 years time? What's your view? 
I, I think it's even broader than that in, in terms of looking at it. I think the, the, the first thing we look at it is in terms of how does change come about in the, in the sector? And this is a case, uh, a model case of showing how not to do it. Just make your announcement, no consultation with community or staff, uh, and load from the front in terms of this is, this is what we're doing. So we have a view that yes, change is about, uh, and our trade union has a, an excellent track record in terms of dealing with change. 40, 50 years ago, we embraced, uh, ATMs and technology when, you know, other organizations weren't at that point. I think the challenge for us is where we are, uh, in digital maturity as a country, you know, we don't have a broad national broadband service, for instance. So saying to people, you can do it online, you have options and so forth. They don't always have those options. There's over a million people in the country aged over 60. Uh, and, they, you know, a significant number of those, their main contact is with the branch. That's how they want to, to, to do their banking. So when we hear about rural divide, rural-urban divide, digital divide, these are things that are becoming very, very real for these 70 communities now. Uh, and that's why we, you know, campaign for the future banking review. We were successful in that regard. Uh, it's been a pretty good engagement up to this point. But I think this colors our view of it in, in, in terms of the state has a majority shareholding in AIB. Uh, and I don't hear anything in terms of from government in relation to, to, to this decision. There is a lot of political debate uh, in the last 24 hours in, in relation to it. We're not people who are not progressive, but as I say, it's how change comes about is as important as the change itself. So look out 10 years, John, how many bank branches do you see in the country? It's, it's hard to predict an exact number, but I think from our point of view is... Uh, if if the model has got right, people will continue to, to, to use them. The BPFI themselves did a survey at the start of the pandemic, which showed quite clearly, even for young people, that they would continue to use branches and revert to branches post-pandemic. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people back in using the branch. Obviously, there's an act, a high level of activity at the moment in relation to the KBC Ulster Bank uh, departure. But... Uh, by and large, we see it as complementary that, that the bank branch can be a blended model with uh, the digital model. Joe, how much of this has been driven by competition from the likes of Revolut, who don't have any bank branches? Yeah, look, this was happening. This has been happening over a number of years. If you look back, I just did a bit, a bit of a back of an envelope calculation there uh, this morning. Um, if you look at the number of branches, about 1,125 1, branches uh, across the country uh, among all lenders in, in the Irish market back in, in 2008. Now, you had the closure of Danscare, you had uh, Bank of Scotland pulling out the market, Irish Nationwide. Uh, uh, collapsing at ACC, pulling out as well, and a number of amalgamations of of, of lenders, EBS being ro- ro- rolled into AIB and also AIB and EBS, kind of cutting branches uh, in the early part of the of the last decade. About six hundred branches, all told, have been closed uh, since two thousand and eight. So that had been happening anyway in advance of the likes of Revolut's uh, the Revolut coming into the market, but certainly. I think the, the whole digital agenda has been accelerated by COVID-19 more than anything else. People have been used to going around and actually, you know, using contactless. I went around for, I'd go around most of the time with my mobile phone and not having a wallet in my in, in my pocket and use that for the last number of years. And you're surprised when somebody actually needs a card. Uh, so people have been used to 
to getting used to using their uh, phones or, or, or even their cards or contactless uh, payments uh, over the last number of years. But that has only been accelerated by, by, by COVID-19. And it's also, look at the banks. It's a good thing for the banks. They don't want to be handling cash as well. So this is a boon for the banks as well. Uh, this is just accelerating something that they were going on the route of anyway. John mentioned that there were no... Uh, uh, there was no consultation essentially in advance of this AIB announcement. Now, the state is a majority shareholder in AIB. Was it aware of the plan or does the state have a view on this plan? Well, the state would have been, I look at it, it, it that there is it, there is a framework agreement, but you can be guaranteed that the, the state would have been, that the Department of Finance would have been uh, informed of the plan in advance. Uh, it's interesting that the plan was announced days after the doll went into summer recess. So they were clearly uh, highly cognizant of the how politically emotive the whole thing would be, uh, deciding to get this out days after the doll went in, into, into recess. But certainly look at the, 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 the state the problem with the state as well is that the state is majority shareholder in AIB and it's in the state's interest if it wants to claw back as much of the money that went into AIB uh, during the financial crisis to uh, boost the, the, the profitability and the value of the bank in order to claw back uh, the investment that went into AIB. Remember that only about 11 billion or so of the 20, almost 21 billion that went into AIB has been clawed back to date. And Joe, what did the bank explain the rationale for removing the ATM machines? Whatever about removing over-the-counter services, they're actually taking the ATMs out, which seems odd. The rationale we're being told is that cash is a cost, you know, transit of cash, uh, putting cash in machines, manning cash, the, the, the whole management of cash is a, is a loss leader for, 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 for banks. You remember that AIB two years ago sold off its non-branch uh, uh, ATM network to, to, to Brinks. So this is a is a, is a kind of a, a, a costly business and a, a, a loss-making business for, for banks in general. And even if you are, you know, operating a bank and you are providing over-the-counter, you're providing financial advice and other services, the actual management of cash is, is, is a costly business. That's the argument that's been made. And John, just in terms of the future of banking, uh, if you like, I mean, what impact is Ulster Bank and KBC's exit from the market going to have uh, on the market, in, in your view? What's it going to mean for your members? Uh, there's obviously an impact for our members in relation to the uh, departure of both banks uh, in, in relation to it. I think what our focus has been on has been trying to save as many jobs as as possible uh, in that change. Uh, and in that regard, we've been quite successful between the, the a uh, number around 500 that will transfer to AIB and roughly 250, 270 to permanent TSB. We, we've been relatively successful in, in, in terms of securing a uh, future for, for those um, uh, staff members. There's still a, a, a big question mark over 600 colleagues in Belfast who operate the back office for the Ulster Bank in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and we have uh, um, worked with NatWest uh, to try and ensure that new services are located in Belfast uh, and that the maximum amount of those jobs equally can be saved. So from from that point of view, from a very dark situation, uh, there's some progress made in, in relation to it. We've just signed off an agreement with AIB. We're waiting for the CCPC uh, ruling in, in terms of the permanent TSB piece, but we've had uh, initial discussions with, with them. 
Uh, and so it, it, it obviously has an impact uh, in in relation to our colleagues in, in both those banks, but also in the receiving banks. But in, ten, in terms of, of looking to the to the future, I think it's how the, the digital transition comes about is the important area of focus for us. Uh, and as I said, this isn't the way to do it. There is a better way. Uh, and we are not in the, the first, second or third quartile of digital maturity in Ireland. We're in the fourth quartile. Uh, and the pace of change in the banking sector should, should match that and not try and exceed that. Uh, and I, I think the, the concerning thing and the worrying thing is on top of all the turmoil that's in the sector at the moment with the level of change that's occurring uh, for consumers, for to have this visited on people in the middle of that, I think is just a very, very poor decision. John, I'm sure the banks would argue that this has been driven by consumer behaviour. Uh, I wonder how often do you go into your local bank branch? Well, I'm probably not a, a good barometer in that I take the opportunity when I'm passionate, not just my own branch, but other branches to uh, have a look and see what's what's happening. And I, I see, uh, uh, you know, in in one of my local branches, I see a queue most days of people uh, forming to get in. And it's not just a COVID queue. Um, we have other branches where people are queuing and, and so forth. So our, our concern in terms of local branches and, and that is the investment hasn't been made uh, in relation to them. The staffing certainly has been run down uh, and that COVID exacerbated that. So from our point of view, uh, a refocus on the branch network and um, developing the services that are there and giving people proper service. So, you know, I, I passed a local branch the other day, there was a sign up to say no cash available. The same sign was up the day previously in, in relation to it. Uh, other days I've seen the branch close because of lack of staffing. And that, that's something you would never have seen in the banking sector before. But that's something that's prevalent now. So the level of service that people get at branch level and the level of service people get at call centre level are as important as the digital offering that is available to people. And our, uh, I suppose, argument is that that has been neglected, that it's for the regulator to step in and demand certain standards, whether you're calling into a branch or you're calling in through a call centre, you should be able to reasonably know what the level of service you're going to receive is. And that's not the case at the moment. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor about the ECB's rate rise and the latest on the global corporation tax proposal. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, the ECB is tomorrow expected to raise its interest rates for the first time in more than a decade. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times joined me to explain the significance of this move and also to run through the latest twists and turns in the OECD's plan to agree a global corporate tax rate. Here we go. Now, Cliff Taylor, you've been writing about the ECB's uh, Governing Council meeting this week and its plan to increase interest rates. That's been well flagged. It was previously said that the increase will be a quarter of a percentage point, which I suppose wouldn't scare the horses. But now in the past few days, 
um, reports have been suggesting that the rise actually could be more of a half percentage point. And we know that there's a, another one probably coming in um, September as well. So what's your what's your best information on this? Are we, are we looking at a, a quarter percentage increase or a half a percent? And why would they go for the higher rate? Yeah, it's a tight call, I think. And it's kind of interesting the way it's all come out the last few days. The ECB gave very clear guidance that it would look at a quarter point increase or implement a quarter point increase this week in interest rates, which would be the first increase in, in over a decade. So, you know, it's a really, uh, it's, it's an interesting moment. And the indication was then that in September, when they came back after the summer break, that there'd be another increase and that might well be half a point. But we've known now for some months that there's been a group of more conservative central bank governors on the on the council from countries like Germany, Holland, Austria, who've been pushing for for more and for increases to happen more quickly. So it does seem, judging by the briefings that have been coming out the last few days, that a half point has has come onto the table. Now, hard to know where the balance is is going to fall this time round. I, I think it would be a kind of a significant enough move for the ECB to go against their own earlier guidance. Uh, but on the flip side, they are now way behind what the uh, US Federal Reserve and the Bank of England are doing. Bank of England rates are already at 1.25% and another half point increase now, likely next week. The Fed is also way, way ahead in terms of, of the interest rate cycle as well. So could well be a half point tomorrow, um, certainly a quarter and another another increase in in September for sure. And so, what's the point of increasing the rates uh, in the first place, uh, Cliff? The idea is that um, central banks react when economies are growing too quickly and consumers are spending loads of money, uh, and that means prices are going up. Uh, and, and and the idea is that higher interest rates cool the economy and bring inflation down. But of course. Inflation this time isn't coming from the demand side of the economy at all. It's coming from supply. It's coming from higher energy prices. It's coming from higher food prices. It's coming up from the complete mess in supply chains that are pushing up the prices of everything across the world. So this has been a bit of a dilemma for central banks, but the Fed and the Bank of England have pushed ahead anyway uh, on the basis that Look, they may not be addressing the direct cause of inflation, but what they want to do is to stop it spreading more widely across economies. So that's why the argument for moving now, and I, I suppose the technical point is they want to affect people's expectations of inflation because when consumers and businesses start to expect uh, that inflation has, is, is now permanently higher, uh, then that is likely to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's kind of the nightmare of, of the central banker. So they're moving anyway, uh, despite the fact, I suppose, that the not quite using a hammer to crack a nut, but uh, they certainly don't have the right implement to address the problems that are pushing inflation higher. Sure. Now, the big question is, what's this going to mean for Irish borrowers, for those with mortgage rates, with mortgages, Cliff? What's it going to mean for the rates, particularly those on trackers and variables? Yeah, I was talking to a few experts about this yesterday. So this this is interesting. And, and there is, fortunately, a bit of competition in the Irish banking market, which which could help us in the short term. In terms of trackers, uh, assuming the ECB increases what's called its refinancing rate, which is its main interest rate, as well as the deposit rate, they're going to go up automatically. So there's no question that that will happen straight away. Quarter point or a half point increase. Uh, Most of the contracts have a month's notice in them. So uh, borrowers will see that increase come come over the next, uh, you know, in, in a month's time. More interesting in terms of, of the, the variable rates, um, 
talking to a few market experts yesterday, Bank of Ireland and PTSB have relatively higher <clears throat> variable rates as things stand now. There is some talk that they might be able to withstand certainly a quarter point increase, but maybe not a half. AIB's rate is already relatively low, you know, not clear what, what it will do from a competitive point of view. But I think the general feeling is that there is some scope there for competition in the market and that we may not see the full belt of any increase from the ECB passed on. I, I think the other thing to bear in mind is that the different lenders in the market are in different positions. So if you look at the big banks, they have huge deposit books, they have a lot of cash, they have more flexibility uh, to hold off, you know, if they need to. Whereas the newer play- players like Finance Ireland don't have big deposit books, uh, you know, and they're going to be probably forced to uh, react more quickly to market changes, not only from the, you know, not only in the variable field, but also in terms of the new fixed rate offers uh, on offer to borrowers, some of which have edged up already, um, although, you know, some, some have moved down as well in recent months as well. So it's been, it's been an interesting market. Cliff, what's the advice from brokers? Are they advising people who are on variables or trackers that now is a good time to fix? Yeah, certainly for people on variables, um, they should already have looked at fixing. And if they haven't, they should do so now because a lot of variables are, the fixed rates on offer to borrowers are well below uh, the variable rates that most uh, most people on variable mortgages will be paying now. So in, in an environment of increasing interest rates, it would be pretty crazy not to look at look at fixing. Even in terms of trackers, um, what mortgage brokers are saying is, well, you know, look at what kind of tracker you're on, what the mortgage, what the margin is over ECB rates, and have a look at where rates might go over the next year or so. Um, some trackers certainly uh, remain at very low rates. Some are at low margins over the ECB, and you know, now have an interest rate of one one and a quarter percent. You'd be crazy to give up on one of those. And I think even for someone with a higher tracker rate at the moment, they should really take uh, professional advice on that one because it's a tight decision. Um, there are often penalties from, from from breaking rates. You know, you really need someone to advise you on what you know what you're getting out of and what you might get into. Uh, you know, in terms of a new fixed rate, because some fixed rates have are quite restrictive in terms of the rules and regulations, and, and some aren't. So, you know, take professional advice on that one. I think. But definitely a time to look at your options and do it quickly. Sure. And just in terms then of the state's own borrowing cost, because this is a wider impact, doesn't it, than just um, mortgages and deposits. What's it going to mean for um, uh, the Irish state? Because we've enjoyed very low borrowing costs over the past uh, number of years. And I think the NTMA has done a good job in terms of locking down some long term borrowing for us at, uh, at nearly zero rates or in some cases. And those who are uh, are buying our bonds are, are essentially uh, paying us for the privilege. So what, what change is this going to have on the borrowing costs for states? Yeah, I mean, we've already seen the market reacting, the, uh, the bond markets reacting uh, pretty dramatically in terms of bond markets. Bond markets tend to be very sleepy places where, you know, there's a tenth of a percentage point move and everyone gets surprised. But we've seen uh, the interest rate Ireland's had to pay on 10-year borrowings go from zero at the start of the year to uh, a height of close to 2.5% uh, a couple of, uh, you know, a month or six weeks ago. Now, interestingly, it's come down a bit, uh, down well below 2% now, down around one8 That's because investors are now thinking, well, hold on a second, we had expected significant in- interest rate increases from the ECB later this year, but if there's going to be a European recession, then... 
ECB rates may not increase as much as, as everyone expected. So, you know, n- not a massive change for for the state at the moment, but but a, the, the start of a gradual uptick, I think, in, in state borrowing rates, which is going to be important for budgets in the year to come, in the years to come. I think the other thing that's going to be watched very carefully uh, in terms of what the ECB say tomorrow and the market reaction is what it means for uh, peripheral borrowers, uh, for I suppose borrowers who have been under more pressure traditionally in in in, the, in recent weeks, particularly Italy. And there are fears that, um, you know, Italian debt could come under some scrutiny by the markets. Uh, there could be some speculation there. Um, there's obviously uncertainty about what's going to happen in the government initially. And crucially, the ECB are to come out tomorrow with a plan for how to uh, support countries like Italy and Spain, uh, or perhaps Spain, if needed, on the markets uh, in the months ahead. Uh, and as ever with the ECB board, there's tensions over that with the more frugal states saying, look, if any countries are going to benefit from special support, then they need to agree to budget and uh, financial rules. And um, that's likely to be very controversial, particularly initially given the political situation there. So there's a lot to watch there. Ireland really isn't in the... Ireland, I don't think, is threatened to be dragged into the middle of that scrum at the moment, but we will certainly... Uh, we certainly could be moving into a new situation, if you like, where investors are looking very carefully again at who they lend to. Sure. Now, just uh, quickly, one other story you've been working on this week is the OECD's uh, corporation tax plan. We know that Ireland signed up to a plan there some months back uh, whereby a minimum rate of 15% will be implemented uh, across the world. And this uh, followed some prompting from uh, the United States uh, once uh, President Joe Biden and his, his administration uh, took office, um, they were the catalyst, if you like, for some movement on these talks, which had become bogged down. But since that plan was agreed, um, the European Union and the United States themselves have become bogged down in, in terms of getting approval. And there's a real fear that US Congress won't give the green light now to this plan. Uh, we know that uh, Pascal Donahue met Janet Yellen recently, and the New York Times uh, was reporting just a couple of days ago that Pascal Donahue was seeking assurances from the United States that, in fact, they would be able to get the plan across the line. Yeah, I'm not sure about that wording. I'm not sure an Irish finance minister is ever in a position to go to uh, Washington and seek assurances uh, from a U.S. Treasury secretary, You know, to be honest. But he was there uh, in his capacity as Eurogroup, um, Eurogroup president. And they did discuss um, the corporate tax situation, the difficulties the US is having getting the deal through Congress. And the New York Times reported that Janet Yellen did give him uh, her opinion that the Biden administration would, in fact, be able to get support uh, in Congress for the key measures uh, that are needed to implement the OECD OECD deal in US legislation. Um, It's an interesting one because since then, the arithmetic in the Senate, the US Senate is so tight that a senator called uh, Joe Mankin from West Virginia has been a key figure. Uh, there's a 50-50 split in the Senate, so every vote counts. And he's been using his position to try and negotiate a deal, if you like. And everyone thought a deal was going to get over the line. And this deal was going to allow the US to legislate for the famous 15% minimum tax rate. And uh, last week, uh, Mankin said, hold on a sec, not happy. Uh, this isn't going to happen on my watch. Uh, and now there's a bit of a flutter in, 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 in Washington because there's midterm elections coming up 
in November. And if this isn't done quickly, you know, it's it's it it has to wait till after the midterm elections. And if the Democrats lose control of Congress, then is it going to happen at all? Uh, so there are doubts about whether the US can pass that key part of the deal, the 15% minimum tax rate. And that's before we even get to the other bit of the deal, which the reallocation of taxing rights, the 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 flip side, if you like, of uh, of the OECD tax deal, which would have to go through the U.S. Congress separately. So that's on its side. In the U in the EU, uh, Hungary are still holding out against the minimum fifteen percent tax rate. Uh, perhaps they'll be bought on board. There's a view that their problem really isn't with this; it's about other stuff. It's about the EU recovery plan, getting hold of EU money, having you know, something to go, something to negotiate with. So the EU could still decide to go ahead with the 15% rate, in which case that would come in here uh, for big companies, uh, I think, in 2024. And then the, the view is, well, maybe if the EU do it, then the US will be forced eventually to come on board uh, because not doing so would involve losing money for the US Treasury. But it's all got a bit messy uh, and it's all got a bit slow. And the other part of the deal looks stuck as well. So unfortunately, the big agreement reached late last year. We all, we thought it was all done. Uh, it was only a matter of dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but it's turned out to be a lot more complicated than that. And just one final thing, Cliff. If the US doesn't get the plan across the line, but the EU does, does it still go ahead? It goes ahead in the sense that uh, the EU would have a minimum 15% corporate tax rate. So that part does go ahead. I think the the other part of the OECD deal, the reallocation of taxing rights, in other words, that the big tech companies would pay some tax in, in big markets where they sell, even if they don't have a physical presence there. I can't see that going ahead without the US because I, I just can't see uh, everyone else signing up to it. So we could have a situation where the the 15% is, is, is in and the other part of the deal is is on hold. Countries go ahead with their own digital sales taxes. It could get a bit messy, uh, you know, between the Europe and Washington. So, an, an interesting point, I suppose, in terms of that is that the the 15% corporate tax was where Ireland was going to make money from the deal. And the other part, the reallocation of taxing rights, was where we we're going to lose money. So it is possible, uh, it is conceivable um, that you know, the Irish Exchequer could benefit from the 15% rate in the next few years and, and the other bit where we'd lose money won't go ahead. So it's an interesting one, but there's a lot of ifs and buts and maybe still, uh, as, as we've seen. There's a lot to play out here, I think. Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Kieran. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor, Joe Brennan and John O'Connell. The show was produced by Declan Conlon. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.